Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 534. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please go and visit evergreenpodcasts.com. First, I'd like to give out a shout out and thanks for putting up a five-star review for the show on Apple Podcasts by AC3 Snow. Much appreciated. So this week's interview is with Ross Dawson. Ross is globally recognized as leading futurist, keynote speaker, strategy advisor, best-selling author, and entrepreneur. He's founding chairman of the Advanced Human Technologies Group of Companies and founder of Bondi Innovation. Ross's previous books include the acclaimed book, Living Networks, which the New York Times credits with predicting the social networking revolution, as well as the bestseller, Developing Knowledge-Based Client Relationships. His latest book is Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information. We discuss with Ross the challenge of dealing with so much information, converting information into knowledge, encouraging stimulating strategic conversations at work, splicing through the signal-to-noise ratio, fact-checking, and how to thrive as a generalist versus a subject matter expert. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a wee moment, go over and drop in a rating review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Ross Dawson, tremendous to have you on my show from down under. Uh, in your own words, Ross, I'd like to describe yourself. Who is Ross Dawson? Well, we have labels for ourselves, and the labels which are usually attached to myself are futurist, keynote speaker, entrepreneur, and author, which is quite a few, but uh, those are the sort of the descriptors, I suppose, of uh, what, I, what I do. I somehow feel that they go together because, you, you know, one helps the other, right? Yeah, well, it's, uh, ultimately, it's around thinking and communicating. You know, I, the, I'm, my, I'm a professional communicator in the broader sense with words, mainly, those some visuals. And in order to have a job communicating, you've got to think things which are a little bit different from other people. So I suppose my job is thinking a bit differently and uh, communicating, hopefully, with impact. So the, the bulk of what I wanted to talk about you today was, Ross, having met you and heard you when you came to London. Um, was to is to talk about your new book, Thriving on Overload, The Five Powers for Success in a World of Exponential Information. Let's start with, I mean, obviously you've written many books, uh, but why this book? What What's the context within which you decided to write this book? So there's two, two answers to that question. One is that in the, 19, in the mid-90s, I, when I left corporate world and started doing my own thing, that's what I, that was the first thing that I, I landed on in a way. I was, so knowledge management was a emerging topic at the time. I said, wow, what a, what a great idea. It's, you know, knowledge is something which we need to manage and think about. And, uh, but what it struck me is that everyone was focusing on organizations and really the big gap was on how individuals can make sense of a world of unlimited information. So I just come out of financial services. So being in financial markets and capital markets and where there's a lot of information and uh, hopefully, you know, people are trying to make better decisions. And part of my role is helping 
to provide information in ways that were useful to to make better decisions. And the education isn't there. The companies weren't teaching people, universities weren't teaching people, schools aren't teaching people. And so those that are good at being able to take on information uh, and make sense of it have really worked it out for themselves. And so that was something I've been passionate about through my life as I describe myself as an infophile, a lover of information and you know, being able to create value with it. And so, and as, as a futurist, that is in a way precisely the job. You have to scan through all of the changes in the world and try to make sense of those in a way that hopefully you can anticipate things and communicate that effectively. So this is a a long journey where, you know, I was literally, I wrote down the, thri- the phrase thriving on information overload back in 1997, or something, and I was built some frameworks which are actually quite similar to what I've developed. So it's just something I've I've believed in for a long time as something really important. It, it strikes me that there's a, a parallel cousin to this problem, which is the overload of communications. Obviously, you can get you know your RSS feeds and the things that you're being sent, but the issue is also that we are overloaded with communications. We get, you know, Skype messages, ping messages, this and that everywhere coming in. And, and I see a lot of people overloaded with that as well. What's your take on that? Well, back, you know, again, from back of the nineties, what, what I, the way I put it is that we have additional communication channels that don't replace, but add to uh, the communication channels we've had. So while letters probably don't have a whole lot of, but we still get things in the post. And we so we have got documents, we've got emails, we've got you know the new new social medias. So there's now we've got our Slacks and we've got our WhatsApps. So these yeah. are additional channels. So this is absolutely part of the overload, is is this channel overload, not just even how much information is within each. And essentially, we do need to be making choices. And one of the things, for example, in an organizational context or in an individual context is to be very clear in communicating to other people what channels you want to be communicated to on. And that's because if you just say, okay, I've got you can access me through all of these different channels, that starts to mean you've got to check all of these channels and you can simply cut some of them off or try to redirect them or just to say, okay, these are the ones I will spend time on. But this is very important is communicating to others clearly. This is how I want to be communicated to because that works for me. Well, I mean, I suppose the challenge is the other way around. I mean, if you're trying to reach somebody, for example, that you want to uh, prospect or something, well, on what channels do they communicate? And you have to adapt yourself to them. Absolutely. And that's so there is this uh, issue of touching people or reaching people. And as a prospect, I think is is one thing or another is just, you know, value, you know, collaboration, ways to be able to to reach people. And I mean, it's interesting to me is that the emails are becoming more and more closely guarded. And so, you know, venture capitalists will never give out their email. And they'll offer various other guys as well. You can sort of be in the Twitter stream or whatever. And those people are overloaded. They're saying, okay, well, email is where I only share that with people I, you know, I want to be contacted with. And, you know, and also they're, they're also potentially unhappy when people share their emails around that. And so they might 
you know, be open to being touched in other ways. So it's also, you don't want to necessarily barge into people's channels. You know, there is this, as you say, there is this two-way thing of saying, well, what channels might they see or what channels might they feel are ones they want to be respected and not be done. And I think there's a lot of people who get offended when people send them blind emails, when, uh, you know, they haven't been given permission to contact them, whereas they might be open to sort of uh, other channels to having something where they can reach out if they, they feel like doing that. I, I have the same kind of vibe in my mind with regard to people on LinkedIn, for example, for connect, wanting to connect with me, connection requests. Hey, Minter, I'd like to be part of your network. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, you being an influencer in this domain, uh, how, do you, how do you react to that? So there was actually a long time. So I was one of the first 10,000 people in the world on LinkedIn. I was just, you know, exploring social networks and I got on and, and for a long time, I actually did very little with it. Uh, and, and in fact, when I was approached by people I didn't know, I, I responded saying, why do you want to connect? Uh, yeah. But, you know, that's, know you? that becomes, <laughs> well, that becomes too time consuming. So basically, I just, I do uh, filter through and I just get a sense of, are they trying to sell me something? Or is this somebody I want to be connected with? And so, you know, just filter out that way. And it's, and actually I've, I've, there's some similarity now to uh, LinkedIn today for me with Twitter in the early days, where I met an extraordinary number of incredible people on Twitter in the early days of Twitter. That was, it was an amazing way of connecting. And LinkedIn actually is um, offering some really interesting new connections to me, which um, but they, yeah, yeah, they come across in different ways, but you know, I want to be open to these, interesting people who are engaging with what I'm doing or reaching out. It's uh, not something you want to turn down. At the same time, there are many interesting people in the world. And back to the subject of your book, it's like, well, if I got in touch with every interesting person in the world, well, I would have no time for my wife, my family, because there's an endless amount of interesting people out there, presumably, especially if you have an open mind. Yes. And it's, so this is, uh, you know, the wonderful thing of, you know, openness. You know, we, we need to be open to experience. We need to be open to ideas. We need to be open to perspective. But if we're at a certain point that uh, it, we inevitably get to overwhelm and to overload. And this is this delicate balance where we, we absolutely don't want to be too closed because then, you know, we've got blinders on. We're not, we're not seeing what's going on. We're, we're going to become old grumpy men. <laughs> or women. But the, the, so this is part of the, you know, we need to, this is, I mean, we find this, you know, it's never balance. I think, you know, this idea of balance is impossible. Illusory. You know, but you need to be somewhere where you are, you know, generally not too far one way or on the other, where you have an openness, but without, you know, where, where you have your boundaries as well. And it's, I think it's you know, each for us to navigate. I don't think you can have hard and fast rules. You know, you can have some guidelines and parameters. If someone reaches out to me, this is what I will say yes or no to as a starting point. But I think there's you know, just a general feel. All right, yes, this is somebody I feel like having a conversation with. And there's not a lot of people, but someone say, yeah, I'd like, you know, be, be very interested to have a, a conversation and get some new ideas and so on. 
Well, I suppose the, the, the like you say, it, it takes work to plow through a, a profile. They just click the button, connection request, no, no note added. I think there's a bunch of a laziness in there. And I, the other thing I think is interesting to, to find this, not balance, but to, let's say, put parameters that allow us to navigate through is to understand your intention and ambition as well. If you, if you, and I think it's basically one of the fundamental messages of your book is know what you're up to, know yourself better, and then you're going to be better able to navigate strategically through the overload. Uh, absolutely. And that, so that's, you know, the first of the five powers and the five chapters is purpose, which, you know, as I point out, is, is a very difficult thing. And I think there's very few people can say, this is my purpose. I know my purpose in life. Uh, or, you know, and hopefully we have some kind of a vague idea, at least, you know, and we're continuing to work on that. So this does require introspection. It does require knowing ourselves. It does require being able to explore and to s- discover, well, this is something, yes, I am even more passionate about than I might have thought, or I discover these amazing things, or no, this is not directions I want to go. So we need to explore to discover ourselves and this is, you know, this the, comes this reinforcing cycle of exploration as a way of discovering yourself to know what it is you want to find and to spend your time with. And that that's, in a way, you know, the nature of life. It certainly is when you're young, you know, you don't know stuff. So you've got to go out there and try stuff and throw the spaghetti on the wall, see what sticks. One of the things you talk about, and something I certainly uh, I, I, I've lived myself, is the notion of having multiple expertises or multiple areas of, of passion interest, as opposed to being a T-shaped where you have one uh, specific zone of deep knowledge. You talk about having multiple areas. I, I, I refer to it as being the comb version, where you have lots of teeth yes. in the comb. Tell us uh, about that, and how do you? When do you stop the teeth, teething, so to speak? It's so being a generalist is a very tough gig. And so I think to become a generalist, you have to start by having at least one area of specialization. You need, if you're shallow everywhere, that's not a generalist. Doesn't you sound do like a great compliment. Have... You're shallow everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, and so it takes time in a way to say, okay, here's one stake in the ground. I'm going to delve deep on this is another one, which is complementary to that where I can dig deep. And so I've, you know, I've had the time over a fairly you know, long career now to, to dig in quite deep into to a number of different domains. And, you know, now as over time, these some, the links between those become more and more evident when that's part of my you know role as the futurist is because I have gone deep into quite a few fairly uh, fundamental aspects of uh, you know the, the world and how it works to be able to piece that together. So I think everyone aspires to be the generalist, and I think there's an incredible value to being the generalist. You know, and as you say, the T-shape means you you know you have some kind of context at least whatever your depth is. But I think we do need to be quite clear around saying this is an area where I will dive deep and you know force yourself to dive deep by for example taking you know some formal or informal studies you know and so you know there are times when I've said well I think I know about this but actually 
let's let me do a you know go to go to a university course and in fact you know you kind of say well actually no i didn't know quite as much about it as i thought i did because you you've been forced to to actually dive deep and i think sometimes people that feel themselves to be specialists uh at times not not always are, are sort of uh don't necessarily have as deep a grounding as they could or they should yeah it's it speaks to two things for me that one is curiosity the curiosity to want to continue to learn to believe that you never will know everything and the more you know something the more you know you don't know something and then there's the humility to 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 allow for the the impregnation of what you're hearing as opposed to buffering it off and say well i already knew that or of course, but sometimes it takes a little bit more grinding out to go down to the understanding, the bigger whys, the bigger ways that things are moving. Absolutely. And I think that that's to truly be the the specialist, to truly have the depth, you have to keep on digging. And that's, uh, there's a quote I just read from uh, uh, one of the, the great scientists of the last century, but is essentially saying you have to know an immense amount before you realize how much you don't know. And right. that's, that's yeah, the more, so you know, the more, you know, you don't know. That's the same yes. underlying thought. All right. Let's talk about knowledge. Um, obviously, uh, you know, so in French, we break it down in different ways with connaissance and savoir, the how to do and, and sort of understanding of things your definition of knowledge struck me as very interesting and different than what I expected in, 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 and the context, I think for this question is that I see a lot of people without knowledge talking about things, talking about it from a position of feelings rather than knowledge and facts. So your definition of knowledge in the book, you write knowledge is the capacity to act effectively. And I, I was there, the part that, was interesting for me was just to act effectively as opposed to well the capacity and you don't even mention really the idea of knowledge per, oh, sorry information underneath it the conversion of information into knowledge so unpack that for us so so that definition actually comes from my first book in uh 2000 uh, developing knowledge based client relationships and where you know there's lots of discussions around the classic data information knowledge wisdom stack and what's the distinction between knowledge and information data and and for me knowledge is required it's, it's understanding of a domain which means and I, I think that ability to act is is fundamental it's making decisions when you make a decision you have a context and you are belief that that action will result more likely to result in something you do want than something you don't want and those people that are able to make better decisions are the ones definitely you know have knowledge of the domain they they have the understanding of the context and the references and the uh this gestalt of understanding that domain in order to make the decision to act uh, in ways which lead to what it is that they want and one of the key points for me is that knowledge is implicitly a semantic network it is a connection in our brains of ideas and concepts. And in every brain, it is unique how we are connecting all of these ideas and the thoughts and the formation of knowledge uh, 
is basically taking in information and experiences and forming our own model from those of of uh, how everything fits together, how these reference points or data points actually make sense in understanding a domain so you can know that if this action happens, that is most likely to result in that outcome and w- with some degree of uh, validity as opposed to just being a, you know, uh, based on feelings, as you suggest. You know, I feel that I might want to do that. And if that is based on that intuition, which is essentially, you know, the subconscious representation of previous experience, that can be effective. But that feeling sometimes can be, uh, you know, not in fact that bringing together of of experience, but more uh, an emotional response, for example. So the rigorous person in me, wherever he she lies, as I look down for it, is um, is wondering about the role of uh, intuition in knowledge. Your how do you how do you how do you gauge your intuition to the extent that it's some unknown quantity within you based on the experiences that you've had? Unknown in the sense it's hard to put your finger on it. It's it's something that's a little bit amorphous, a little bit abstract. Well, essentially in the quality of your decisions. So, of course, the seminal work on intuition was done by Herbert Simon, uh, won the, the Nobel Prize uh, for psychology. Oh, no, economics, actually. And so he's you know looked extensively at decision-making and a lot of his work, uh, you know, very famous work was with chess grandmasters and their ability to... Uh, you know, essentially use the the gestalt of their experience, everything which they had, all the previous games they had played in order to be able to know what the best move was. And so uh, speed chess. So when the chess grandmaster plays against 30 different people at the same time, there, there isn't the ability to rationally decide what the best move is. You see the board and you feel what the right move is. And if you can win against 30, you know, competent people, then that demonstrates that your intuition is good. It is not a rational thought in terms of thinking through all the possible moves. You are intuiting from the all of your experience over time uh, what the, the best move is. That's the only way you can play at that pace. So the analog is just saying, all right, we have an executive in a complex decision-making situation. And the way to judge their intuition is their gut feel good can only be based on the effectiveness of their decisions. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. What's funny, when you use the word board, my mind slipped into board of directors as opposed to a chessboard. I was thinking about the parallels there. So um, one of the 
you, you talk about a forceful prediction uh, that's designed to stimulate strategic conversation, because in the end of the day, let's say we're acting as a board and we are wanting to be strategic. You, you talk about these ideas of strategic conversations. And I, it, from my experience, it was all too frequently not brought to the table these ideas, strategic conversations. How do you, what's in your way of seeing how managers should be bringing more of these types of conversations into the big meetings? The, so uh, you may be familiar with the book scenarios by Case van der Heiden. Uh, I am not, it's, but I've noted. It's an, it's an old book now. It's actually, I think it dates from the 90s, but it's still a wonderful book, which is, it's, and it's hard. It's about strategic conversation. You know, and whilst the title of the book is Scenarios, it is about how it is we elicit strategic conversations. And one of them is to pose hypotheses and to uncover the implicit mental models. There's also some uh, wonderful work done by Colin Eden and colleagues who was at the University of Strathclyde uh, before he retired. And what they were doing was using uh, cognitive maps to elicit the essentially the, the mental models of the people in executive teams in order to be able to align them. So that's really central to my interests is, is I suppose this, you know, there are different structures and mechanisms to how we can do that. So if we have a group, be it a board of directors or an executive team or some other relatively compact team, for actually get them individually and collectively to make their thinking make their mental models explicit, which helps them to clarify their own thinking and also to uncover where it is that there are differences in those underlying mental models and ones where, where, which you enable to then have a truly valuable strategic conversation. Because my you know, experience is that in many boards and executive teams, you have people talking at each other from different implicit mental models which essentially means that you, you you get an impasse. You don't you know you don't get a integration of those mental models, which then can create something which enables a better decision than either of the individuals working together. And so these are the kinds of conversations you need to have to really have a true strategic conversation. Saying why do you think that? What is the underlying things? And to pull down into what are the assumptions? What are the why do you think that this leads to that? What, and I think that uh, eliciting these mental models is, in fact, extraordinarily valuable to any individual, because uh, you know what we the way we think is is not visible to ourselves usually, and this starts to then elucidate our own ways of thinking in ways that we can then align our thinking in between uh, you know groups in effective ways. Yeah, th this um, speaks to me. Obviously, I'm writing a new book about conversation and i talk about the the you me us uh, principle where you have your mental model i have mine and the key is to understand what is it about us that we're trying to mutually go towards and i think that one of the biggest challenges in so many cases is that there's no well-defined us and this can be bro broken down into the issues of politics in at the home or in you know with friends and it can be also applied to 
nations. It can be applied to companies. So you're sitting across from your the director of some other department and you get into some kind of quibble or discord. But there's nothing that unites us at a meta level to show that we both need to get through this and listen to one another and then collaborate towards something bigger. I suppose, what do you, how do you react to that? The, well, that's, you know, I suppose one of the frames around that is, is simply purpose is aligning purpose, aligning values. So that's, these are more common exercises within executive teams and they are absolutely fundamental. You know, why are we doing what, you know, why, why are we doing anything at all? You know, why does this organization exists? And that starting point of aligning around purpose and values is a fundamental starting point. And I think, you know, fortunately, most organizations are sort of reasonably articulated that. I mean, whether that articulation is close to the reality is, is a different question, but at least, the, you know, there are there are articulations of that. And so that is the starting point where you can then start uh, for only from there, start to align your mental models and of, you know, of the industry, of your organization, of how it's can be successful in the future. Well, I, I'm. You have optimistic uh, viewpoint about how companies describe their uh, purpose. I, I find it wholly lacking in most uh, most of the conversations and businesses I get to work with. When um, I, when you talk about having conversations in the boardroom, there is a inevitably a question of knowledge and how much each one knows about the industry and what's coming out. You also have intellectual property and knowledge that should be confidential so how do you parse through that when in this in this issue of overload from a organizational context or well yeah as an individual you're running a company maybe and you you have knowledge what knowledge i mean some companies are extremely guarded on the knowledge that they have which makes it very thick and and difficult to get through all the information layers because it's parsed out. They specifically only want this team to know about this part of it. And this, this other team is supposed to know only about this. So they're sort of compartmentalizing the knowledge and it becomes very complicated to understand or make it fluid one through the other and to accept external opinions or external information Though I mean, I think of the tech companies in particular, of course. Yes. Well, I mean, pulling back to the big picture, there is really two ways to frame an organization. Information open by default or information closed by default. So information closed by default saying the only reason, you know, the only way we will make this accessible is that you need to know it. Otherwise, it's not available as opposed to saying the only reason we will not make this available is that there is you know a legal reason or a you know a competitive reason or whatever and so you know Atlassian is one of a, a number of companies which has the open by default policy as in everything in the organization can be seen by anybody unless you know there's for example a a securities filing which you know can't be released uh, before an investor you know, investor event, for example, in which case that, that shut down. And as you might suspect, my sympathies are very much with the open by default 
in terms of being able to create value. Is So that creates more information, creates more access to information, but that allows, amongst other things, alignment on values, alignment on purpose, alignment on mental models, and in particular, for an organizational context to be able to take in information which is relevant to decision-making and to feed that into decisions. And so, uh, you know, again, so some uh, older reference points, but uh, Carl Weick wrote around uh, organizational sense-making. And I, I think that there is an incredibly strong analog. An individual brain, you know, an individual mind, what we do is we make sense of the world. We have information coming in, uh, we make sense of that, we form a mental model, and we make decisions. There's a, there's a very, very strong analog to an organization which is immersed with information. Information comes into the organization. It makes sense of it in some implicit form. It makes decisions and acts as a result. Now, of course, uh, the so what we are trying to do essentially is to make an organization an effective analog of a intelligent brain, a well-performing brain, where if information signals come in externally, as in, oh, this competitor is doing something new, which we hadn't even imagined, or this new technology could impact our distribution or whatever it may be. So the organization as a whole, every person in the organization is part of that sense-making apparatus and can then bring that into, uh, you know, essentially the the locus of decisions, be that the board, executive team, or, or broader group of people, so that is making effective decisions based on the fullest possible information. And that is simply not possible if you live in a closed by default organization. One, we're living in a world which um, has all this information. We're also living in a world that's very divided. And uh, so in, in a, just a personal side, you can quickly close off yourself, talk about closed environment, to 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 read the only the news that you want because it satisfies what your sense making of the world is and we've narrowed it means it seems to me sometimes our scope in how much we want to make sense of and so if you're in a business you can also very quickly have the same challenge of of you know this is what we're doing this is the only thing that we need to be figuring out and it can quickly lead to blind spots when you when you create that sense making, if you get it wrong somehow, or if you're not able to adjust, yes, and so this is where you know, you know the we need to be flexible and adaptable in a fast changing world. And part of the you know a lot of the, my tagline for a lot of my work these days is in an accelerating world. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the world's moving faster and faster. So clearly staying the same in a, an increasingly fast-moving world is not going to work. So whether the unit be the individual or the team or the board or the organization or the nation or the city or whatever it may be, this uh, need to be able to be flexible, to adapt, to sense what are the meaningful changes and what are the useful responses to those is at the heart of being able to have any kind of success however one defines success the thriving component i i I definitely get the feeling that for most of us at least at our age ross 
somehow we got bundled into this without really proper training, whether it was yes. the, the overflow of communications or the overflow of information. And so we're always having to play catch up. Oh, there's a new telegram. Oh, there's a new uh, RSS feed. Oh, there's a new Slack. And, and, and uh, I think the vast majority of people, and certainly the statistics seem to show out, there is an incredible amount of burnout and people are suffering, not thriving in this overload. So what words of wisdom would you provide for them? I mean, in a way, this does come back to something which is very simple, you know, arguably trite, which is we have to let go. It is impossible to keep up. Accept it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's you know, a lot easier said than done. Because, you know, we're always trying to say, well, I'm feeling behind. I don't know if I'm on top of things. I want to be able to to know what's happening. But we have to acknowledge we are limited. You know, even if we were to be away, you know, all of our waking hours dedicated to the relevant information, uh, you know, never stopping except to have necessary sustenance, you know, we still wouldn't be able to do it. So we just have to be gracefully accept that there is only so much we can do and to draw that line. And so that is a, you know, there is a uh, emotional courage in a way to be able to do that. We cannot get to the thriving to uh, from a point of uh, just feeling we need to keep up. And so I frame this as from thriving to abundance. And this is the frame of saying, well, rather than saying, okay, there's far too much than I could ever possibly keep on top of, I will always be behind to saying, I have all of the information I could possibly want to achieve what I want. Far more than ever before. So whatever it is I want to do, that information is available to me as never before. So it's it does require this mindset shift. And as you know, it is a lot easier said than done. But at the same time, there's actually nothing else we can do. Unless we change our attitude, we are going to inevitably be uh, massively overwhelmed and overloaded. Well, so I, I wanted to uh, cite a friend, John Perkis, who wrote The Power of Letting Go, um, if anyone wants to pursue that thought if further down. And it brings up a topic you, you started talking about at the beginning of the book, which is the paradoxes dealing with our paradoxes. And you cite uh, the work done by Professor Myron Spector at INSEAD about the paradoxical mindset. What for you, Ross, is the biggest paradox that you face? Well, well, the first one that comes to mind is what I've described to myself as the paradox between Zen and creating the future. And so in the world of Zen, the only thing that exists is the present. There is nothing else. The past doesn't exist. The future doesn't exist. There is only now. And we must live now. Otherwise, we don't live at all. Mm. So that is a paradox when we say, well, I want to work in order to be able to create something better for myself or my family or the world or whatever. And that's a future which might never happen which is just in my imagination. And, and right now, the only, the omnipresent now, I am working hard to something which doesn't exist. And that's, 
that's been you know something I've grappled with for all, all my life. So I lived in a Zen dojo in Japan for a year and studied under a Zen master there. And that's, you know, I suppose, you know, I, I don't think I can well articulate it, but I think I have gained a better appreciation of it. So when you go in a Zen monastery, work is meditation. So if you're in a monastery or if you go on a Zen session, a sort of a, a focused uh, meditation session, you sit in meditation, you know, for, for extended periods. And then you sweep up in the kitchen, you sweep up in the the open areas, you chop things for the kitchen, you clean up. And all of that work, all of the things you are doing are just as much meditation as the sitting. That's your meditation is in the work. Your being in the now is in your work. And that's something, again, which is easier to say to say than to truly appreciate but i mean that i suppose that's been my journey is to try to resolve that deep paradox because society is all based around progress working toward tomorrow building our fortune whatever and efficiencies effectiveness yeah and it takes uh most people away from the uh ever-present now and so i'm dying to ask ross what was the trigger that made you sign up for this Zen experience in Japan? Back, well, I, I first read uh, the Alan Watts' books, uh, the, the Art of Zen and the Way of Tao, uh, in my late teens, I suppose. And uh, that sparked, you know, and I've read many, many, many Zen books uh, in the subsequent years and thinking about that. And Long story, I just ended up in Japan. Uh, and At what age? Uh, sorry? At what age? I was 29 when I landed in Japan. And there's, yeah, there's a whole, that's a long story in its own right. But I, I quickly found, yeah, and that was one of the reasons I ended up in Japan as opposed to someone else. Somewhere else was because of my interest. I found this uh, Zen master who taught classes in English uh, on Saturdays and so I done him. And then he had this, basically this Zen center where uh, English speaking people could live together in a Zen community. So I went to work still uh, as a financial journalist uh, and came back and did my community chores. And we all meditated at least twice a day and, uh, you know, listened to lectures. So it was being part of that community for, uh, for a year. Hmm. Well, I'm, I'm sure it contributed to help or it helped you to uh, understand a little bit better who you were. Yes. Yes. It's, uh, there is no substitute for meditation. Meditation takes myriad forms, but our you know, default mode network, our brain's always active. It's always on. And any way to be able to quiet that is the only way to, to really find a little bit more who you are otherwise there's this constant chatter yeah in the in the paradox that you refer to being futurist and and the living in the now there's also the past that i mean if you don't know your history then things will repeat and, the, and like you've cited so many 
giants of the past. We're, we're always living on the shoulders of giants somehow, even as much as we want to think we're original and smart and all this. So that, that even complicates worse is that you've got to understand all the past somehow as well or not in, in this idea of sense-making. Yes. And it's, you know, again, we can never, never, you know, read all the books we want to read of all of the, the millions of amazing books that have been, but we have that abundance. We have that available to us, you know, the incredible literature, incredible ideas and thinking from, you know, from now backwards, we can, uh, you know, use this as the foundations. And as you say, it's all, we're always building on what we have. That's the nature of humanity. That's the nature of progress. We have been able to capture our ideas and the best thinking and discover that and to use that. So that's the, these are the resource we have. And that's part of the reason why we should, most people should be spending more time on the long form content that has established demonstrated value as opposed to most people who spend the majority of their time on ephemera which tomorrow will be forgotten yeah like tiktok or some unverified sources i think it's, a, it's an important topic this notion of verification of the source the validation of your sources and reading a book that's been self-published sometimes can bring up the questionableness of the validity of what's being in there in terms of indexing and uh, verification of sources and, and the um, footnotes and whatnot so uh, what it brings up if you will chat gpt which you know it does so many marvelous things and it, it looks like it's citing verified sources and and it looks like everything is appropriate but it's not and so how, how do you what sort of shortcuts can you provide in, in establishing the validity of sources. It doesn't seem like there's an easy path and just telling ChatGPT, give me verified sources doesn't seem to be enough either. No. So at this point, there's only two solutions. One is manual checking. And the other is you can, there's some people who are creating some apps at the moment, which are, for example, if a link is given by a, a large language model, it will just go and check that that, that link is actually valid supposed to imagined and uh you know potentially to you know have some kind of other checks on that so there's you can there is a a, a simple a very simple layer of uh automation which can assist in being able to assess the uh the you know what's produced hallucinations but you know i i've found times when they found the majority of what it's um, i get back is hallucinated but it's still valuable you know, for example, um, you know, sometimes I, I've, I've asked in the past for books on a particular topic and it gives me, you know, a couple of books I've read, a couple of books I haven't read and a book that doesn't exist. And the, the books I haven't read, the ones, oh, okay, actually that's, that is interesting. <laughs> and so you got to do your homework and legwork and, you know, and so on. Or again, and I, I was actually researching uh, non-white male uh, definitions of intelligence and uh, so there's immense amounts of hallucinations generated in the responses but it found it pointed me towards some people you know and it had invented quotes of those people but i found those people and those then i found things they actually had said which were relevant and so it's it's doesn't you know cut time 
to to nothing to give you the answers, but it's still more efficient if used in the right way and for the right purposes. So you just need to you know not expect it to give perfect answers, but simply to be a tool which can be deeply questioned. You know the classic uh, you know description of treat uh, ChatGPT as an intern, as in it's smart, it wants to help, but it's probably going to make some mistakes. So you got to check everything. But, you know, it can still be helpful. That's a very good way of presenting ChatGPT 4.0. Last question for you before we close out, Ross. Um, What are the tools that can help us in this idea of parsing through? What are the top tools? And and can AI actually easily help us today in, in curating the information that we need? The the broad answer is I've been disappointed forever and still today, really, in the quality of information filtering tools, uh, including AI-enabled ones. So what I would point to is the promise of them becoming a lot better soon. So I I still uh, largely use manual filtering i use rss feeds i you know go particular sources uh you know and obviously if you are using social media in any sense there are algorithms behind that which with varying degrees of quality uh but if you train you know you you can train social media algorithms by only demonstrating any hint of any interest if it actually truly is something you want to see more of be aware of every click you make yes exactly uh, and you know some and the algorithms can be start to be more useful and effective for you. And so there's still an array of tools. There's some interesting initiatives I'm seeing, but I w- I won't mention them because they're not really good enough, I think, to to talk about. But I think they are promising in terms of the potential of AI to to filter more effectively. And it's you know it's 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 kind of astounding to me how poor our information filters are still today. Which, you know, puts the onus back on us. We've got to keep on looking for the tools and use what's uh, good for us. And, you know, it hopefully avoids us falling into the trap of uh, relying on the machine too much. We need to take accountability and responsibility for the issues. As the Stoics say, it's not what happens to you, it's how you react to what happens to you that counts. So, Ross Dawson, a futurist, what lies in the future of Ross and how can we connect with you and that future? So I uh, got got a number of new initiatives coming out. So, I mean, my general work is at rossdawson.com. So I've I've recently rebranded my podcast, which was titled Thriving on Overload, to Amplifying Cognition. And that's to bring together these ideas of thriving on overload, as we've discussed, and humans plus AI, which is my major theme at the moment. Uh, so Amplifying Cognition points to a number of the other initiatives which I have at the moment, which includes a new humans plus AI learning community. Uh, uh, and also a new AI app, uh, Thoughtweaver, which uh, is provides an interface to ampl- you know, make more effective people's interactions with 
GPT and other large language models. So all of those various resources can be accessed at uh, amplifyingcognition.com. Brilliant. Um, the, the, the use of the word weaver makes me think of a little bit the old-fashioned notion of the hands and the, and the sort of the artisanal and back to the reality, which is that it just can't be some simple, easy thing. We still need to be manual. We still need to bring the human with the AI. And uh, it's been a pleasure listening to you, Ross. I, I appreciated very much your, your perspectives. I enjoyed the book. I think it's a desperately necessary book, Thriving on Overload, because I think of the problem of the lack of thriving in people's lives. And I think of the predicament of this overload of communications and information as one of the, the things that has hijacked so many of our lives that we're not uh, good at it. So many thanks, Ross, for being on the show. I look forward to staying in touch and um, encourage everybody to go get your book, Thriving on Overload. Thank you very much, Ross. Great pleasure, uh, Minter. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dialogue. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on mintodile.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. Man, 
about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We We out. out.